Hello, West Village family and anyone that may be joining us online for the first time. A huge welcome to you. Uh, my name is Chris, one of the leaders here at West Village. Uh, well, I can honestly say uh, at the beginning of this week, I did not anticipate uh, that I would be preaching to a video camera again in an empty room. Uh, but yet here we are. Uh, here we are again. And uh, just before we jump into this morning's text, I just want to share just three things with you quickly uh, by way of encouragement. I think the text we have this morning is going to encourage your heart with the moment we find ourselves in, but just three things uh, as your friend, as one of the leaders in your church, as one of the pastors here at Westville, I just want to share. The first one is this. Uh, I want everybody to know that you are deeply loved. Uh, you're deeply loved by Jesus. You're deeply loved by me. Even if I don't know you, I literally pray regularly that the Holy Spirit would uh, give me just a deep love for the people who call West Village Church their home. And so you are loved. You're loved by me. You're loved by Jesus. You're loved by our church family. Um, yeah, I just want you to know that in this season. Uh, the second thing is this. You are not alone. Uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about in this season uh, as a society is our physical health. Uh, and one of the things that isn't getting talked uh, enough about, in my opinion, is is mental health and just... Uh, the, the reality that we're not just immune systems, but that we are also spiritual beings. We have uh, <clears throat> emotions and those are real. And uh, mental health is a very real part of what we are all going through. And I just want you to know that uh, you don't have to be alone. Uh, Jesus doesn't want you to be alone. You weren't made to live in uh, isolation or even socially distanced uh, or relationally distanced maybe. But uh, we as a church family, while we love you, we also want to know you. We, we want to connect with you. Uh, and we have meaningful ways that uh, you can actually connect with our church. You, you can connect in ways that are honoring to your health. Uh, they're honoring to our government, uh, provincial government uh, regulations and guidelines. Uh, and, and we want to help you do that. You can just simply send an email to info at westvillagechurch.com and, and we'll connect with you. Um, but yeah, don't, don't Lone Ranger it in this season. Make sure you are in community. <clears throat> and then the third thing, final thing, uh, before we jump in is this, uh, and that is simply that Jesus is on the throne. Uh, he is seated on the throne. He has never not been on the throne. And, and church, you need to know this, that Jesus has this. He, he completely and utterly has this. He isn't taking a nap. Uh, he didn't miss an email. Uh, the, you know, somebody didn't slip one past him. He is so keenly aware of what is happening in this moment. Uh, he is sovereign. He holds the whole world in his hands. The one who spoke the universe into existence knows what is happening in our world. He knows what is happening in your world right now, and he has this. And so my encouragement to us as a church as this happens is not to allow uh, government restrictions or pandemic numbers or uh, the 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 stuff that is happening on social media to be the things that have the dominant say and sway in our lives but to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what I keep coming back to for us as a church. Hebrews chapter one, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, sorry, verses one and two, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's, it's all about him. It's only about him. And it's always about him. Amen, church. Amen. All right, we got to get to work. If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up, go to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we love to teach through books of the Bible here at West Village, and we've been going through a series on the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. This is actually week number 95 in our teaching series, and we find ourselves in a text uh, today that I, I think is just so timely. Uh, God in his sovereignty brought us to this text, and Jesus here is going to ask and answer the question for us, what is true greatness? What does greatness mean? Now, when we think of greatness, culturally, 
often we, we tend to think of greatness in terms of a pyramid. Like there's sort of this pyramid structure uh, as it pertains to what greatness is. And whoever is at the top of the pyramid, they are the greatest. And so we say things all the time. Uh, maybe you don't say things, but we say things like this in my house because my house is like super hyper competitive whenever we like do anything. But second place is first loser. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Second place is first loser. And so when we think of greatness, we think of somebody who is in first place, somebody who's at the top of the pyramid, somebody who has a lot of wealth, they have a lot of influence, they have a lot of power, maybe they have the biggest office, it's a corner office with a window, with a great view. But that is how we define greatness. That is greatness to us. Well, Jesus, as he always does, is going to absolutely blow up our categories. He's going to completely redefine for us what greatness is. So, so let's jump in. Matthew uh, chapter 20, picking up in verse 17, uh, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, writes this. Now, Jesus, who was going up to Jerusalem on the way, he took the 12 aside and he said to them. Now, in this section of Matthew's gospel, uh, what we've been seeing here is that Jesus has been having all kinds of side conversations with his disciples, really helping them understand who he really is. And we have the privilege of looking in on those conversations. Look at what he says. Matthew writes in verse 18, Jesus says to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and he will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now this is uh, what scholars call the thir third of three passion predictions in the Gospel of Matthew. And passion predictions are simply where Jesus predicts his own, um, his own death that is forthcoming. Uh, so Jesus is looking down the quarter of time of his life, and he's, he's telling the disciples that this is where my life is going. In fact, the whole of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem. He's on this road towards Jerusalem, and it's on the road to Jerusalem where he is going to ultimately lay down his life. And, and notice what Matthew records about this incident. <clears throat> it says that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those are the religious leaders of the day. And they're going to have him condemned to death. They're going to uh, have a, a fake court or a fake trial, I should say, whereby they're going to uh, condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans who had a political or governmental rule uh, in that day, and they are going to have him mocked and flogged and ultimately crucified. So Jesus is going to experience torture. He's going to experience um, what it means to uh, live through intense torture and physical pain. And ultimately, he is going to die. He's going to die by crucifixion, this slow, painful, torturous death. And then what Jesus says is on the third day that he will be raised to life. In other words, God is going to come and actually resurrect the, the breathless body of Jesus to new life. And what Jesus is doing here is he's painting a picture for us of the culmination of his ministry. This is the high point of his ministry. Often when we think of the ministry of Jesus, uh, we think of his teaching. Uh, we think of his uh, his compassion on those who, uh, you know, who needed grace and compassion shown to them. We, we think of his mercy. Those are all good things. We think of his miracles. We think of his healing. We think of his, um, his ability to heal the sick and, and multiply food and, 
and turn water into wine. Those are the things we associate with the ministry of Jesus. And those are all good and those are well, and those are definitely a part of the ministry of Jesus. But make no mistake about it, what Jesus points to time and time and time again as the high point or the apex of his ministry is actually his death on the cross. That it is his death on the cross that is the ultimate fulfillment of what he came to do. That it is his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life that that points to the reality that God loves us, that God uh, entered into human history in the person and work of Jesus, that he lived a perfect life, that he went to the cross to die, in our, uh, to die for our sins, and that he was raised to new life. And with his resurrection, we too have the hope that we will one day rise, that this world is not all that there is, that there is a whole other life to be lived beyond the, the life that we are currently living. And, and Jesus says, this is why I've come. Now, I want you to notice something here because Jesus is about to enter into a conversation with a woman to talk about what true greatness is. But notice that this is the foundation that Jesus lays for this conversation about greatness. This should tell us something about where this conversation is going. Jesus paints a picture for us of greatness. Jesus, the greatest person who has ever lived, and yet he, his life ends in crucifixion. His life ends in torturous death. His life ends in humiliation. And so we're starting to get this sense that that greatness in the way we define it might look radically different in Jesus's kingdom. So let's continue on. Uh, Verse 20, here's what we see. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, these are, uh, Zebedee's sons are James and John. These are the cousins of Jesus. And so this woman who's coming to Jesus is actually his aunt. Uh, so uh, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to, uh, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Uh, in G- verse 21, Jesus responds to her by saying, what is it that you want? <clears throat> and now look at what she said. She said, grant me one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. So this is kind of a crazy request that she makes of Jesus. Uh, Functionally, what she's saying uh, to Jesus is, Jesus, in your kingdom, I want my two sons to be seated at the places of highest honor within your kingdom. In other words, Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to make them great. I want you to give them power. I want you to give them authority. I want you to give them the place of honor. Now, now it's easy on its face to look at this request that this woman makes to Jesus and to critique her, to to look at her and say, oh my goodness, this is a little pretentious, right? Like coming to Jesus, throwing yourself at his feet and saying like, hey, Jesus, can you make my kids, you know, the the, the greatest in your kingdom? I mean, this is such a mom thing to do, right? Moms are totally like this. Moms want the best for their kids all the time, right? Like my mom took my my paintings, like my school paintings and my my school projects, and she always put the, put them up on the on the refrigerator as if they were like these, uh, you know, amazing pieces of art. And I mean, now looking back, I realize they weren't. But this is like what a mom would want for her kids. She would want the best. And it's easy to look at her and say, "Okay, you're you're a little bit overbearing here as a mother. Right? You're a little bit of a helicopter parent. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're like the the parent who like takes a picture of their kid or a video of their kid like taking their first steps and like puts it on social media as if it's like this great." you know, uh, feet. Everybody knows how to walk. Uh, But the reality is there's some basis to the question that this mother is asking. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, if you have your Bibles, go back to Matthew chapter 
19. At the end of Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is having this interaction with Peter. And Peter asks Jesus a question. He says, what are we going to get, Jesus, uh, you know, for, for leaving everything to follow you? And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. He, he said to them, to the disciples, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, so in a sense, the question that uh, John and James's mother is asking of Jesus, isn't that far-fetched? Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19 said, those who leave everything to follow me are going to have this place of prominence in my kingdom. But yet, she doesn't, as those who are around Jesus so often struggle with, doesn't quite get Jesus and all that he is. Look at Jesus's response. Verse 22. He says, you do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? You don't even know what you're asking here, mom, okay? Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Now, this is a curious response, isn't it? I mean, just think about it on its face. Uh, this woman comes to Jesus with her two sons. Can they uh, have a place of prominence in your kingdom? And then Jesus says, hey, do you want to go for a drink? I mean, it's almost as if he doesn't get it, right? Like, doesn't Jesus know we're like in a global pandemic and there's lockdowns? Like, we can't actually go for a drink, uh, Jesus. <laughs> so why is this his response? Why, why does Jesus respond this way? We got to do a bit of a deep dive here into what Jesus is saying in order to fully grasp the reality of what he's saying. So again, verse 22, look at what he says. He says, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? That phrase cup or that concept of the cup, it's a loaded image in the Bible. Uh, the image literally is a picture of judgment or retribution. It's literally this picture of, of a cup of judgment or a cup of wrath being poured out onto someone. And literally, this is the exact same phrase that Jesus uh, uses when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he is to go to the cross. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's in the garden, and he's having this intense prayer time where he's praying to uh, God the Father, and he literally prays that the Father would remove the cup or to take the cup of God's wrath off of him. In other words, he prays literally that Jesus would not or he prays literally that he would not have to go to the cross, that he would not have to experience the cup of the wrath or the judgment of God poured out against him. And then ultimately Jesus, in his humility, submits to the will of the Father. And what Jesus is doing here, what he's laying down here for James and for John and for their mother, is that he's, he's calling into question their view of greatness and ultimately their view of the kingdom. He's saying to them, you, you think greatness comes with power. Uh, you, you think greatness comes with prestige, with authority, with glory. But it doesn't. That's not what true greatness is. That might be greatness in the eyes of the world. Uh, that might be greatness in the eyes of those outside of the kingdom. But <clears throat> greatness as defined by me and as defined by my kingdom, Jesus is saying, it's defined by suffering. Greatness is defined by Jesus right here in verse 22 as suffering. You know, you might be, you might be hearing this, and, and I don't know, I mean, 
we have a lot of people that are a part of our community. We have people that are new to faith in Jesus. We have people that are on a spiritual journey. We have people that are that are checking out Jesus, checking out church. We have people that have been in church for a long time. Ultimately, it doesn't matter where you are at on your spiritual journey. What Jesus is saying here is a massive confrontation to the human heart. One of the, the lies that we have been told as a culture is that the highest ideal, the highest sense of self-fulfillment that we can truly discover is coming to this place where we realize our own self-actualization. In other words, the human condition or the human project, I should say, has been boiled down to this idea that if we can actualize ourselves, if we can look inside of our heart, look at our desires, look at our wants, look at our needs, and actually realize them, realize our hopes and realize our dreams and, and realize all the things that we aspire to, that, that we can achieve a level of greatness, personal greatness, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. And for many of us, this is why we follow Jesus. This is why we're in pursuit of Jesus. We think if we come to Jesus, we're going to have a better life. Uh, we think <clears throat> if we can, uh, you know, uh, if, if we come to Jesus, that he's going to somehow improve our lives. He's going to somehow make us feel better about ourselves. It's actually not that different than what James and John and their mother are talking about here. Jesus, we want to be great. What can you do for us? Can you elevate us in your kingdom? We want greatness. We want to be self-actualized. We want, we want self-fulfillment. We want glory. And Jesus is pushing up against this idea that the way to greatness or the way to self-fulfillment is through realizing all the deepest desires and longings of our heart. It's, he's pushing against this idea of self-actualization. He's pushing against this idea that, that all we have to do is realize the goodness within us. And when we, when we realize the goodness within us, we will realize why we were made. Jesus, in fact, he's saying the complete opposite of that. He's saying the way to greatness is suffering. The way to greatness is death. See, what Jesus isn't saying is, uh, come along. I just want to make you feel good about yourself. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to enjoy your life. I just want you to find meaning. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying the way to contentment, the way to discover true meaning, the way to realize your purpose in life. Hear his words here. This is a confrontation of the human heart you're about to get right now. It's death. It's death. Jesus is saying your hearts are restless, desperate to find some sort of meaning. And the way that you are going to discover that meaning is not by looking inside, but it's by putting yourself to death and realizing that you need somebody to come in from the outside and save you. That's what he's saying. And if you're hearing this and you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you're a Christian, you've been in church, this shouldn't be new to us. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. If you've been tracking with this series on the Gospel of Matthew, this shouldn't be new to us. This is what Jesus has been saying throughout his entire gospel. If you go all the way back to 
Uh, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things or all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Then <laughs> he says this just a few chapters before where we find ourselves now. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 26 is even more clear here that, uh, there than he is here. Look at what he says. <clears throat> then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What's he saying? He's saying in order to find your life, you have to lose it. How do you lose your life? By denying yourself, taking up your cross, the very cross Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to endure. This cross of death. That is how you find yourself. And this has consistently been the message of Jesus. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. Look at what he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, he writes this, I want to know Christ. You want to know Jesus, right? Do you want to know Jesus? I want to know Jesus. Everybody says they want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ, yes. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Everybody loves the resurrection story, right? We love this picture of the dead being raised. We love this picture of eternity with Jesus, face to face, face to face with Jesus. This is the picture that, that John and James and their, their mother were after, seated at the right hand, seated at the left hand. Jesus, we want to be with you, but look at what he says next. And the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What, what is Paul saying? He's saying greatness comes through death, becoming like him in his death. The Bible is consistently, constantly coming up against our views of greatness, our views of meaning, our views of what it means to be self-actualized. And it's saying, you think when you have money, you think when you have power, you think when you have influence, you think when your life becomes Instagram awesome, then you will be great. And the Bible is constantly saying no. Jesus is constantly saying no, that is not how it is. Greatness is when you identify with Jesus in his sufferings. Uh, greatness is when you participate in what Jesus is about to participate, when you share in his sufferings, when you have a full identification with the sufferings of Christ. Now, I want to hit pause here for just a second because this is a heavy, hard word. I am under no illusions. But I think it's a relevant word for the moment that we find ourselves in. Now, I want to be clear before I say what I'm about to say, okay? Uh, I'm not making political statements here. Uh, I'm not making statements about the pandemic. I'm not making statements about our provincial government, about health authorities. I'm not making any of those statements. 
But in the last number of days, as we have seen new uh, orders come down, new restrictions placed upon us, as, as the restrictions have become even more significant, <clears throat> what I have seen from Christians, what I have seen from specifically Christian leaders, pastors, elders in churches, I feel like it's exposed that we do not embrace verse 22 of Jesus's teaching. We have not been a people who have suffered well. I've seen a lot of church leaders, I've seen a lot of Christians complaining about their rights, accusing the government of persecuting the church. And honestly, it feels to me as if we we are weak. We are thin-skinned. And that we are so quick to play the martyr card and the persecution card without recognizing that Jesus actually said this was going to be our way. It wasn't in the fine print. He didn't mince his words. If we are going to follow him, we are going to suffer. We as his people need to stop being so, so weak, so, so wimpy. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not talking about those who suffer with mental health. I'm not, so, I'm not talking about those who are, who are legitimately experiencing internal pain and suffering and turmoil as a result of, uh, of being you know, um, in, in physical isolation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about those of us who feel as if we have to defend our rights, we have to stand up for ourselves when we follow one who laid down all of his rights and went to the cross. Jesus promised you that you would suffer, and he promises you that if you follow him, you too would suffer. That this is going to be Hard, that your life wasn't going to be easy. So we as the church need to let his call, his call to suffer for the sake of his gospel, put steel in our spine. And we need to roll up our sleeves, church. We need to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Suffering for Jesus, making disciples for Jesus, and making Jesus known in our city. So Jesus says the way to greatness, the way to me, it's through suffering. It requires that you die, but he doesn't end there. Look at what he, look at what happens next. So, so the disciples hear this, right? James and John hear this. You gotta, you gotta drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And look at what they say in the second half of verse 22. We can, we can. I, I love the Bible. I, lo- I love the Bible because it's so honest. I mean, these guys, uh, these guys, they have no idea what they're saying yes to. They have no idea what they're signing up for. In fact, they completely don't get it, which as a follower of Jesus brings me great comfort because these are the guys that are going to, you know, functionally go out and plant churches, that the church is going to, the gospel is going to be shared, churches are going to be planted, the church is going to be built on the ministry of James and John. These guys that don't actually get it. And, and I love that because honestly, that's how I feel uh, most days. Uh, great encouragement to me. The disciples don't get it. I don't get it. You don't get it. Jesus gets it. He fills us with the spirit and he uses us despite that. But look how Jesus is, Jesus responds to them in verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. If you want to sit at my right hand and my left hand in my kingdom, you have to suffer. They said, we are willing to suffer. Jesus is like, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. To follow me means to suffer, and suffer they did. In Acts chapter 12, we see that James is one of the first martyrs in the early church. For John, the other disciple who is talked about in this passage, who's having this conversation with Jesus, he was arrested for preaching the gospel and planting churches. He was exiled and left for dead on the island of Patmos. In fact, church history tells us that all of Jesus's first disciples were killed. They were martyred for their belief in him. The apostle Paul was beheaded. Matthew and Thomas were murdered. Philip and Bartholomew were executed. Andrew and Peter were crucified. In fact, when Peter was crucified, he requested that he be crucified upside down because he did not feel he was worthy of being crucified in the same manner as his Lord was. And on and on and on and on. Church history is littered with thousands, hundreds of thousands of stories of martyrdom. In fact, even today, followers of Jesus are being killed for their faith. Let me ask us a question. Why were they willing to do this? Why were these disciples willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus? Well, one, because they believed it was true. They believed Jesus was who he said he was. And they knew just as he died, they too were going to die. But here's what else they knew. They knew that as Jesus was raised, they too would be raised. That just as he has been raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that they too would be, after their death, raised to new life. And just as Jesus says here, a place prepared for them by his father, a place was prepared for them by their heavenly father where they would be seated in glory. They knew they were going to be with him. The pain and the suffering in this life was worth the greatness and the glory in the life to come. What is Jesus saying to them? Saying, are you sure? Are you sure you want greatness are you sure you want to be seated next to me in my kingdom? Are you sure that you want to follow me? You will suffer. You will suffer. Let me ask this church, are we sure? Are you sure? Are we sure that we want to make Jesus known in our city? Are we sure that we want to saturate the city with the gospel of Jesus? Are we sure that we want to plant churches? Are we sure that we want to make disciples? Are we sure? Are you sure? that you want to follow Jesus, then what we are experiencing right now in this momentary lockdown is nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of following Jesus. And what we will experience in following him, the suffering, the hardship, the sacrifice, it's nothing. It's nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Is there pain? Yes, there's pain. Is there hardship? Yes, there is hardship. And there's likely more to come. But one day, 
One day we're going to look at Jesus in the face. We're going to be in the place that the Father has prepared for us, looking Jesus in the face, eye to eye. And we're going to hear his voice whisper over us, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the greatness we're after. And in verse 24, Matthew writes, when the 10, the other 10 who were with James and John heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Indignant uh, probably because they were jealous. They were probably jealous that these guys were going for a power grab. And then look at what Jesus says as we As he wraps up this section, verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Let me me just be clear. Jesus isn't talking about a a tyrannical rule. He's just talking about this reality that the way that the culture defines greatness is through lordship, through, through having places of prominence and wealth and position and status and influence, all that. But look at what he says in verse 26. He's gonna talk about his kingdom now. He's gonna talk about what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Look at what he says, verse 26, not so with you instead. Whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant and whoever wants to uh, be first must be your slave. Jesus has said things like this multiple times through verses 18, nine, uh, chapter 18, 19, and now 20, right? The last will be first, the first will be last. If you wanna be great, you must be a servant. If you wanna be great, you must be slave of all. And key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is recognizing that he identifies greatness as being a servant or being a slave. This idea that that you have sold yourself into slavery. A first century slave literally was someone who had lost all their rights. They no longer had status or rights as a human being or as a person because Those were taken away from them. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to actually give away your rights. You have to sell yourself, if you will, into slavery, but not slavery to an evil king who rules, uh, um, who has authority and rules over you. you. You sell yourself into slavery to King Jesus, the one who lays down his life for those whom he leads. But notice what Jesus is saying here. If you do not, sell yourself into slavery functionally, you can't be a servant. See, see, for a slave, they could serve because they had no other choice but to serve. They had no rights. They had no dignity. And what Jesus is saying is when you come to me, when you drink my cup of suffering, you're now my disciple, you're my servant, you're my slave. And what we do in my kingdom is we serve. What Jesus is saying is that until you suffer that great loss of self, you'll not be able to truly serve. Because to be a servant means you're willing to get no glory, no credit, no accolades. But the only way to actually do that is to have absolutely no skin in the game. Nothing at stake, nothing to gain. And it's not until you're in that place that you can serve. And the way that you get into that place is by being willing to lay down your life for Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. 
How desperate right now is our world for people who will live like this, who are willing to lay down their rights for the sake of others, who are willing to set aside their preferences for the sake of others, who are willing to put other people ahead of themselves. Friends, I I would argue, I'd contend that that right now in the moment we find ourselves in, apart from prayer, which if we're going into a lockdown where you are going to have a lot of time for prayer, that apart from prayer, what Jesus is talking about here, this idea of humble submission and humble servitude is the greatest missional tool that we have by the grace of God been given. But the moment we find ourselves in, there is an opportunity in front of us to sacrifice and to serve. And the only question is, will we humble ourselves? Will we suffer for Jesus? Will we become like servants? And then Jesus ends right where he started in verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus paints for us the ultimate picture of a servant. He is that ultimate picture, isn't he? He didn't come to serve, or he didn't come to be served, rather. He came to serve. He left heaven and he came to earth. He entered into Mary's womb. He came out of her womb as a baby. He lived his whole adult life as a humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. The pictures we have of Jesus are these pictures of humility. We have pictures of him literally washing the feet of his disciples, even the disciple Judas, who he knew was going to betray him. And then the ultimate picture of Jesus's humility was his willingness to go to the cross. He says it right here, to lay down his life, the God of the universe taking on human flesh and going to the cross, laying down his life to ransom us, to redeem us, to purchase us out of slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to Satan, slavery to ourselves, and to make us his own. He's the ultimate picture of what it means to be a servant. And he invites us to follow him. He invites you to follow him. Right now, he is inviting you to follow him, the one the one who was willing to give his life for you. Westfield family, the invitation of Jesus in this text is that we would humble ourselves and we would follow Jesus. And as Jesus served, we would serve. As Jesus suffered, we would suffer. As Jesus laid down his life, we would lay down his life. And where we lack, he is able. He's able to strengthen us, to empower us, and to send us. Will we follow? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you love us, that you are kind to us. We thank you that you did lay down your life for us. And Jesus, in this moment right now, I just invite us to search our hearts, to seek after you, to hear your voice calling, and we would respond and we would follow. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.